I said it first. <laughs> you beat me. <laughs> Welcome back to the weirdest thing. I'm Scotty Milder. I'm a writer, oh, horror I missed, filmmaker. I messed up. We're, we're, start over. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you start first. Oh, that was a mess. Okay. <laughs> are we starting all the way over? Or we yeah, okay. go back to the beginning. I might leave some of this in. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. Hi. I, hi. Hi. <laughs> Um, I am uh, Scotty Milder. I almost forgot my own name. I'm really tired, guys. Like, I had no sleep last night. <laughs> uh, we're on take two of the top of this thing. <laughs> yeah. This is uh, the Weirdest Thing podcast, where we talk about weird shit. Who are you? I, I'm Amelia Ampuero. I'm a theater maker, an actor here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I don't have the excuse of not having slept last night for my, <laughs> for my wackiness, I guess. Yeah, no, it was just one of those nights. Couldn't get to sleep, tossed and turned, changed my story for today, like literally at four in the morning. So yeah, this is the like ch -ch 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 changes uh, <laughs> because I also changed my story from last week's like from la like the recording of last week's episode to right now today when we are recording. I think we both changed it three times. Something like that. Yeah. Well, and because and I'll just say why. Like we were trying to do like haunting stories, like mm -hmm. like ghosty, creepy stories. Ooh. And it's actually like really hard to find a good ghost story because like mm -hmm. they're not like the movies like in the movies it's like you know there's like a narrative arc to it and then like most ghost stories it's like here's this terrible thing that happened and then like you know we saw someone like sitting on a chair or something that yeah. might be a ghost and that's like that's the story. Yeah. So yeah. So I have kind of a ghosty story, but it's a little more of a true crime story. <laughs> okay. Mine is a bit of a ghosty story, but also is just some sort of like strange goings on. I don't even like, you know what my story is. I don't even know what yours is. So I'm excited. Do you want me to tell you or do you want me to just no, wait just, until we get to mine? Just surprise okay. me. Yeah. Okay, great. Cool. Should I uh, dive in then? I think so. Right. Cause you're first. Yeah, I'm first. I am telling the story of the Los Feliz Murder Mansion in Los Angeles, which I have been to like a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. So my sources for this, this is actually, I think the probably the very first story I've done for this podcast that I didn't use Wikipedia at all. Why? It's not on Wikipedia. Like there's shut up. There's nothing on it. I googled the names. I googled the street. I go or not Google, but like Wikipedia, the names, the street, the address, everything. It's not on Wikipedia. It's really weird. But there is like a ton of information about it. Of course. It. So my sources for this are Los Feliz Murder Mansion from Atlas Obscura, and then also article from February 9th, two thousand nine by. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> I probably uh, shouldn't have said that on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My social security number is um yeah. Yeah, happy belated birthday by the way. I forgot to actually say it when we did our show last week. That's okay. Thank you. But uh so it's from February 9th, 2009 by a guy named Bob Poole. It's from the Los Angeles Times. It's called On a Los Feliz Hill Murder, then a mystery. 
Mm. Also from LA Weekly, August 1st, 2017, The Story of the Los Feliz Murder Mansion and Its Paranormal Aftermath by Brian Clune. And it's actually an excerpt from his book, uh, Hollywood Obscura, Death, Murder, and the Paranormal Aftermath, 2017. Um, I'm going to have to read that book because yeah. I've never heard of it. But I was just reading like the Amazon whatever <sighs> like blurb about it. And I was like, oh, that sounds fucking cool. What's the title of it again? Hollywood Obscura, Death, Murder, and the Paranormal Aftermath aftermath it's from 2017 uh the writer is brian clune nice then i'm also uh, taking from an article from strange remains uh from december 26 2019 there was no author for this it was the sinister story of la's murder mansion Mm. and last a little mention here towards the end of los filas murder mansion january 2016 by alexis vaughn and it's from her blog welcome friend let's have some fun (laughs) (laughs) and she's a photographer and it's a photo blog and i'll talk about that here in a little bit Uh so if you have not heard of the los feliz murder mansion let me tell you what it is so it's built in 1925 now i am a little reluctant to give the address but i think i'm just going to because it's like you know it's the same thing from the amityville horror story it's still Mm -hmm. standing there's a bunch of neighbors like don't be a dick and like go climb all over this house maybe can we maybe just say that instead of saying the like do you have to say the address well i do because (laughs) here's the reason why because it's going to be in our social media (laughs) images um the address is going to be yeah um and it's and it's all over the internet if you google los feliz murder mansion the address comes up right away it's 2475 glendower place in uh, los feliz california and if you guys are not familiar with los feliz it's a neighbor i don't think it's like a separate city but it's a neighborhood kind of just east of east hollywood uh, up in the hills so like if you imagine where the hollywood sign is it's kind of just east of there the houses go all the way up that hill as well i feel like that whole area of la has had a lot of stuff happen in it oh yeah well i mean you've got yeah i mean there's uh one of the manson murders was over in that area too right um, okay yeah <laughs> i mean it's la so like there's really no part of the city where something horrible hasn't happened because this is true just the history of that place yep but yeah so it's on glendower place it's basically like a little tiny cul-de-sac off of uh, glendower which is kind of a major road that goes up into the hills there it was built in 1925 it's a 5,000 square foot mansion three-story spanish revival style uh with a basement and a maid's quarters and i looked up who the architect was i was really wanting it to be paul williams <laughs> no i don't want that house to belong to paul williams <laughs> it, well you're in luck because it's not i think it was a little i think it was a little early for paul williams was, when was it built 1925. And mm. you, you were saying he was really getting into the, like, being the architect for the stars with Lon Chaney. So that would have been, like, in the, like, early 30s. So it was probably, like, a little, like five years before Paul Williams really hit his stride. Mm-hmm. The architect was a guy named Harry E. Weiner, and it was built and owned by a guy named Harry S. Schumacher. And he lived there, Harry Schumacher lived there for a few years and then died in 1932. Uh, nothing creepy about that. He was just an old guy and then he died. Okay. <laughs> so may he rest in peace. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, switched hands a few times and then finally was bought up by the Pearlson family in the early 1950s. Okay. Uh, so put a pin in the Pearlsons because that's who we're going to be talking about. Okay. The first floor had a like an entrance hall with a glassed-in conservatory and then a big-ass living room. At the back, there's a den, a dining room, and a kitchen. And then four master-sized bedrooms all on the second floor. And then the third floor is a giant ballroom. What? Yeah. 
Yeah. So there's really like a big. I think they said it was like 20 foot by 50 foot or something. I didn't write it down. Like huge ballroom. I just want to say that that's bigger than a lot of the theaters that I've performed at here in Albuquerque. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. And it's also. So if you would like to join our Patreon to get us to buy the Los Feliz murder mansion so that I can start a new company in Los Angeles. That would. I would love to see a show done at the murder mansion. (laughs) That would be fucking creepy and awesome as hell. I also just think it's really weird that the ballroom is on the third floor. I don't know if that was like common. But it seems yeah, like that's you want the it's the um, I don't know. This house a, gives me the creeps. You got a bunch of people coming over. Like, why make them go all the way to the third floor and like walk past your bedrooms and stuff? Maybe good know. views. Ah, yeah, probably. Maybe there were like great views. Yeah, yeah. And if you and if you know this area, I mean, it is like great views of the city. Like it's like you're up in the hills. You're looking out over the city. So that, that actually probably is why. <laughs> you're like um, the ballroom was a windowless room. <laughs> yeah, just a dungeon on the third just, floor. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about the Pearlson family. So Harold Pearlson, he was a prominent cardiothoracic surgeon in the LA area. He also mm-hmm. was an allergist, which I thought was interesting because it's like, you don't tend to think of being a cardiothoracic surgeon and being an allergist as like the same discipline. But yeah, apparently that's he weird. did both. Yeah. Okay. He's a Renaissance man. Very successful. Also had invented a new type of syringe at the time, which became very popular, very like common use. So this, of course... You know, he had the patent on it. So, oh, okay. The dude's just rolling in money at this point. He had written a respected clinical report titled The Electrocardiogram in Familial Periodic Paralysis, whatever that means. That sounds like some good, yeah, some good smarty before bed reading. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'll tell you about his his before bed reading material here here in a second because it's actually part of the story. Oh, fuck. Okay. Um, Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) He was also, he was featured in, uh, the magazine American Heart Journal in 1949 when he was about 40 years old, I think. Okay. And then he was also a well-known keynote speaker at medical conferences all over the country. So he was just a very prominent doctor. He ended up becoming the head or the assistant head of cardiology at the USC Medical School and was on surgical teams throughout at hospitals throughout the city. And if you know anything about USC Medical School, like it is one of the top medical schools in the country. So mm-hmm. this is, you know, this is like a prestigious like he's not like your small town country doctor. Like mm-hmm. he's like one of the most prominent doctors in the country at this point. Yeah. His wife, Lillian Pearlson, she was a homemaker. I, I couldn't find a lot of information about her. Of course. And then they had three children. So in 1959, which is when the story takes place, their oldest child, Judy, she was 18 years old. She was a senior in high school. Mm-hmm. They also had a 13 year old son, Joseph, and then an 11 year old daughter, Debbie. Okay. So let's talk about what happened. Okay, I'm ready. Yeah. And and I do want to say this does deserve, I'm going to try to avoid like the worst details of this, mm-hmm. but this does deserve a content warning. Okay. There's some stuff that's kind of hard to avoid. Okay. So on the night of December 7th, 1959, Harold, who was 50 at the time, he got home from work, went into the kitchen, fixed himself a drink, said hi to his kids. And then went into the living room where his wife was wrapping Christmas presents. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Pearlsons were Jewish, but they had started celebrating Christmas sort of just for the sense of community, yeah. with friends and coworkers, also just for the kids, you know, so yeah. the kids wouldn't miss out. So she's in there wrapping Christmas presents by the Christmas tree. They sat and chatted for a little bit. And then she said, okay, it's time for dinner. They all went. They sat, ate a nice dinner together. After dinner, they all went and watched 
uh, television for a while. Eventually, Debbie, the youngest, she was 11, and Joseph, 13, they went up to bed. Judy stayed up a little bit longer, and then she went to her room to work on homework. And -hmm. at that point, Lillian went to bed as well. Lillian's Mm -hmm. the wife. Okay. Harold stayed downstairs waiting for the wife and kids to go to sleep. Finally, he went up and he waited He waited for his wife to go to sleep. He went to bed and he sat up in bed for a while reading Dante's Divine Comedy. Ooh. Yeah, so like you said, light reading. Yeah. And he actually marked a passage and that was like the last place in the book before he closed up and went to sleep for the night. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll tell you what the passage is here in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, he went to sleep. Then he woke up at five in the morning. Uh, Everyone else in the house was still asleep. He gets up. He goes down to the kitchen where he kept a small tool chest and uh, removed a a ball-peen hammer. Mm -hmm. And this is where the content warning comes into play. Mm -hmm. He went back up to his master bedroom where his wife was sleeping and he bludgeoned her to death with the hammer. He beat her so badly that when the police finally arrived, she was unrecognizable. I think she never woke up. She didn't make a noise because everyone else in the house was still asleep. Yeah. So after killing his wife, he then went into Judy's room. She's the oldest daughter. And she's asleep as well. And he, oh no, she had woken up. She had heard something. I don't think she had heard a scream or anything, but she had heard something. She was laying in bed, I think feigning sleep. He came in and he went to attack her with the hammer, but she managed to get her arm up just in time. Mm. He still hit her in the head with the hammer, but she was able to kind of soften the blow. Mm-hmm. But it did leave her like stunned and disoriented. And she tried to fight her father off, kind of stumbled, fell out of bed. She's bleeding. She's got a fractured skull mm. at this point, And she starts screaming. This, of course, wakes up both her younger brother and sister mm-hmm. and also wakes up the neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you've been with me to the murder mansion. Mm-hmm. Like you think like big Hollywood mansion you know, and you're, you're seeing the images of Beverly Hills and it's these like huge mansions behind hedges tucked way back on these huge lots. You mm-hmm. know? That's not what this is. I mean, the mansion comes right up to the road mm-hmm. and it's just crowded in with all these other kind of houses and mansions from the same time period. Well, when we went and did the thing that we are advocating listeners to not, not do, to do, which is to drive past it. Uh, yes, we are very, we're very bad. We're very naughty. Um, but I feel like there was literally nothing stopping me from getting out of your car and walking right up to the damn house to like no. look in the windows. Yeah. And I'll talk about that because that ended up being a major problem okay. <laughs> with this okay. house. Uh, but yeah, no, but that's exactly right. You know, there's Basically, like, if you drive up, as we said, don't do this. I'm going to tell you, like, what we did. If you drive up Glendower, which is this (laughs) kind of windy road, there's Mm -hmm. this little turnoff. It's Glendower Place. And like I said, it's a very short, very narrow little cul-de-sac. You pull in there. There's houses all over. And the murder mansion is kind of the first. It's over on the left. It's kind of the first one right there. And it's just Mm -hmm. looming. There's There's a long yard that goes up to it. Mm-hmm. but the house is just looming over the street there's a there's a three-car garage that's just right there by the sidewalk yeah and then kind of a walkway up to this house so you can imagine if she starts screaming everyone around there is going to hear her because yeah. there's there's no distance Ugh. so she started screaming like i said this woke up the younger siblings and so at this point 11 year old debbie she's the younger she went out into the hallway Ugh. harold Thinking he he hadn't, you know, he had he had hit Judy with the hammer. He thought he had incapacitated her. Mm-hmm. He heard Debbie in the hallway. So he went out to where she was, but he didn't attack her. He simply, he said, go back to bed, honey, uh, baby. This is just a nightmare. 
And then he walked her to her bedroom and put her to bed. And then after he got Debbie back in bed, he went back essentially to try and finish the job on Judy. Well, at this point, Judy kind of got her wits about her. Mm-hmm. And she was like, fuck no. Yeah. And so still screaming, she managed to get away from him and fled the house. She ran, it sounds like just next door to the neighbor's house, uh, someone named Marshall Ross and his family. Ugh. They had been awakened by the screaming. So they mm-hmm. were actually out on their porch. And I think they had already called the police. They were standing out on their porch, kind of looking up at, at the uh, Pearlson house. When here mm-hmm. comes Judy, just sprinting across with a fractured oh, skull covered in oh. blood. Oh, sprinting across the uh, the lawn towards them. Mm-hmm. She tells them what happened. They bring her inside and immediately call the police. Well, Debbie, her dad had told her, you know, go back to bed, baby. This is just a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Well, she was not dumb. Yeah. So rather than go back to bed, she went and got Joseph, the 13-year-old, and was like, we need to get out of here. So by the time Harold managed to go back into their bedroom, they had mm-hmm. also run. Okay. Uh, so they also got away. They They went to the same house. They went to this Marshall Ross's house. Okay. They also confirmed what had happened. The police were on their way. Harold, at this point, realized, you know, he managed to kill his wife, but he did not. You know, he hurt Judy, but he wasn't able to kill his kids. Mm-hmm. So he went up to the bathroom, the upstairs bathroom, like I think it was the master bathroom, and got a bottle of barbiturates, went back into the bedroom where his wife was, mm-hmm. and just drank them all down with like a glass of water and a single gulp. Now, this is one of those, like, there's some weird inconsistencies with this story. You know, there's a lot of things reported in the paper that were maybe not entirely correct. Mm. Um, And also just that, like, internet game of telephone that we all know about. Mm-hmm. So the lore around this story is that he actually grabbed a bottle of acid and used the acid to drink the pills. Right. To Ooh. kill himself. Okay. But like who has a bottle of acid just like hanging out in their yeah. house? Well, he was he was a doctor, you know, so he might have had My dad was a doctor. We never had bottles of acid sitting around. But I mean <laughs> I think I think whatever the acid was supposedly that he drank, I don't think it was like hydrochloric acid or something. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it was something that would have been part of his medical kit. You know, this is okay. like nineteen fifty nine doctor, so maybe I don't know. Maybe they used acid to treat like eye infections or something who knows you're like no i'm skeptical (laughs) (laughs) well this is actually probably not even true though Mm -hmm. um and clune in his uh, like i said it's the la weekly article that's the excerpt from his book he says that there's no evidence that he used a bottle of acid and contemporary reports just say he had overdosed on pills okay so who knows where this acid thing came from, but it's sort of has become part of the myth. That's like the right. story when I first heard this story, that was the story I had heard was that he drank a bottle of acid to kill himself. Right. I mean, it makes a better story. I be guess honest. so. Yeah. <laughs> well, this, this is about when the police arrived. Okay. So they first went over to Marshall Ross's house and examined the children, made sure all the kids were okay. And they... Mm-hmm. Looked at Judy, saw saw the injuries from the hammer. I think it was just one hammer blow. But they were like, she's not in good shape. So they rushed her off in the ambulance where she ended up being treated for severe bruising and a fractured skull. Mm. But it does say that she ultimately did survive no long-term permanent injuries. Okay. The two younger children were totally fine. You know, he had not had any opportunity to do anything mm-hmm. to physically physically Phys- yes. they're unharmed yeah i yes. mean i think as we can all assume <laughs> yep i'm sure there was plenty of psychological damage 
Mm-hmm. Now there is a contradictory story here. So, you know, when the police arrived in one of the stories I read, it says that they went over to Pearlson's house where Marshall Ross was pounding on the door and he told the police he's not answering the door. I read a different story though, in the strange remains article, it actually said, at least it reported that a 1959 newspaper article said that Marshall Ross actually did go into the house where he encountered Harold Pearlson downstairs. <laughs> He said that Harold was agitated, but still alive. So Ross was like, hey, maybe you should go lay down. And Mm -hmm. Harold was like, listen, said, okay. And that's when he went back upstairs to his bedroom. Either way, when the police finally came over, they searched the house where they found Harold lying on the floor of the bedroom near his wife's body. And I believe, I, I I know he died. I'm not sure if he died that night or later. I couldn't find much information on it. Mm-hmm. He was still clutching the hammer. Mm-hmm. And the empty pill bottle was laying on the floor next to him. And like I said, Lillian, his wife had been beaten so badly she was unrecognizable. And the, the entire bedroom was covered in blood. His copy of the Divine Comedy was still laying open on the nightstand. And the cops looked at it and saw where he had marked the passage. And this is what he had marked. Right. Okay. It says, Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. And I think he had, like, underlined that. So the kids ended up, uh, basically, relatives took the kids in and moved them to the East Coast, and no one knows what happened to them. The general prevailing theory is that they changed their names, basically just started fresh, and they've never spoken about this. And I did do a Google to see if there's anything recent, Mm because there's been a bunch, because the murder house has been in the news over the last two, three years, so I was wondering Mm -hmm. if anything new had come up, but it sounds like the kids still have never spoken about it. And I hope that they've gone on to live happy and healthy lives. Yeah. But at the very least, we can say, other than Judy, there were no injuries, and her injuries were not permanent. So that's that's good. good. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the investigation. Now, obviously, there wasn't much of an investigation. (laughs) They were like, we think we can figure out what happened here. Let's get Sherlock Holmes in here with his (laughs) great deductive mind. (laughs) he's like why did you hire me this is literally like everything is right here so basically it was just very straightforward case was quickly closed but the the big mystery was what was the motive because Mm -hmm. all of the neighbors friends and family they were absolutely shocked they all said that they were a loving happy family there was no visible strain on the marriage Mm -hmm. so why would he do this well you talked i believe is in the la llorona episode where you talked about the family annihilator Mm-hmm. And basically, when it's a man, the reasons why a man might try to kill his family. Yep. One of the big ones is financial. Mm-hmm. Um, there was evidence that came out later that their finances were in trouble. They found a letter in Judy's car. She had addressed it to her aunt. And it did describe some tension in the family where she said, quote, we're on the merry-go-round again. Same problem, same worries, only tenfold. My parents are in a bind financially. Ooh. She also said in the letter that she, Judy, was looking for a job to help the family through their financial crisis. And she's an 18-year-old kid. Yeah, and he's a big and old cardiologist, like allergist doctor. <laughs> right. <laughs> Cardiologist. Yeah. Um, I mean, that yeah, tells me they were in, like, they must have been in really bad shape if, like, you know, Judy had to go get, you know, get a job at the malt shop or something to help out. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find much information on how, how why their finances were so bad. Cause I was like, was there a gambling thing? Yeah. Was there, 
there's really nothing out there. My guess is it's they got in over their heads. They probably got overextended. It sounds like there was a ton of debt. You know, he made very good money. You know, they're probably just living outside their means or, mm. you know, something happened. Mm-hmm. But basically the prevailing general consensus is that he, quote, and I, I never liked this term, so that's why I'm putting it in quotes, snapped. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, under that pressure and decided it would be better for his family to be dead than be reduced to poverty. There's never been any evidence that it was an abusive relationship yeah or anything like this was completely out of character Mm -hmm. you know obviously he had killed his wife Mm -hmm. and he had tried to kill his oldest daughter no one really knows if he really did plan to kill the two younger children and this is if you get on like the there's this is one of those kind of like the hotel cecil Mm-hmm. If anyone's been watching Netflix, I did finally watch it. By the way, I watched. Oh, okay, okay. We'll talk. We'll, we'll have to talk about that here in a minute. Yo, the you know you let these web sleuths loose on a story, they will pick at everything and come up with all sorts of theories. So this is one of the big debated parts of this story. There is some evidence that maybe he was not planning to kill the younger children, and the big sort of evidence in that regard would be when he went out into the hallway and debbie was there she had woken up he didn't attack her or kill her he said go to sleep it's just a nightmare and put her back to bed so nobody knows yeah my guess is he probably was going to kill all of them and i think at this point i mean clearly i think there's some mental illness um yep at play here yeah, I don't think he, uh, you know, I don't think he was thinking clearly about how to go about this. this is, I mean, this is not a master plan that the guy had. Right, right. And I think, I mean, you know, I know everybody wants to pull a lot of meaning because I think everybody wants to make sense of like right. senseless tragedies. Like that, that there's there's a, a desire to put the pieces together for whatever the the ultimate reason may be. But I think the big thing, like. And hearing this and watching the Hotel Cecil show on Netflix, on watching Unsolved Mysteries, on being somebody who is a true crime fan, Mm -hmm. uh, I think the biggest mistake that true crime fans make is the projection of their own thoughts and emotions on people. So it's like, ooh, this person smiled when they said that. And it's like, I mean, that's that's your perception of what's going on there. The truth is that that we're never going to know with this story. Yeah. And even if that person did smile, you don't know what the smile means. Yeah, unless uh, you're Chris Watts and you're a right demon. Yeah, I mean, spawn from Satan's butthole. Oh, I hate that guy. <laughs> yeah, he's the fucking worst. Yeah, no, I mean, no, nobody really knows. No one knows what was going on in his head. Yeah, or what oh, his plans so were. So it's just a lot of projection. Okay, so that's the murders. This is where the story gets kind of weird. This is where the story gets weird. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Because, you know, the murders are the murders. They're terrible, but this happens. But what Mm -hmm. happens to the house afterwards is strange. Okay, okay. So the house was sold. It just sat there for about a year. I don't think they had any family around, so no one came and cleaned the house out. Just still had all their stuff in it. And then it went into, I, I saw a couple different things so in one source i saw it said that it was sold at auction mm-hmm. at another i saw it was like a probate sale i don't mm-hmm. really know what the difference is and i don't feel like anyone cares so we're not going to go okay ahead. but it was sold cheap it was sold on the cheap the proceeds ultimately went to settle all of harold's debts and to provide for the children and this is something that kind of pisses me off about this story mm-hmm. is it's like if there were enough proceeds from a probate sale to not only settle his debts and provide for his children Yep. All the motherfucker had to do was sell his house. 
Yeah. Well, and that's the thing that makes me be like, maybe it wasn't the money. Maybe, maybe he was just, right. I, this is not to like, you know, garner sympathy for him. Maybe he was just ill. I think like when you read the story, like I talked about of how he went about the crime. Yeah. It's so strange. I, I don't think he was in his right mind. And as someone who has suffered from clinical depression to the mm-hmm. point that you become kind of delusional, mm-hmm. you know, I've been there. Mm-hmm. So I actually do like, I don't want to overstate this, but assuming right. that he did have some issues with depression or mental illness, I do have a modicum of sympathy for him because it does sound like he loved his family, but something went haywire. Yeah. Somewhere. It could have been a combination of factors. You know, if they were in debt and he was suffering from essentially psychotic depression, you know, Mm -hmm. depression to the point where you have kind of a psychotic break, Mm -hmm. the debt in his mind probably became much larger than it actually was. Mm -hmm. That that's what I imagine, but it does. It's just, it's disappointing because it sounds like, you know, if they had basically downsized their lifestyle. They could have gotten through whatever financial stress they were under. Right. But, you know, this is a time period. This is post-war prosperity. You know, everyone's supposed to be, you know, kind of keeping up with the Joneses. I'm sure yeah. this is like a sign of failure. Yeah. So there's there's a lot at play there. Yeah. Well, so anyway, so the house did sell to a couple. And I wasn't able to find out a lot about them other than their name. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julian and Emily Enriquez. And I'm not sure what they did or where they were from. They were from the area, but I didn't, I just didn't find a lot of information on them, like where their money came from or anything. Mm-hmm. But they bought the house. The neighbors were like, good, we've got a new family moving in. We can put this behind us. But that's not what happened. Julian and Emily essentially used the house as a storage shed for 34 years. That's an expensive storage shed. Yeah. And that's why I say, like, this part of the story is the weird part of the story. Because, you know, a murder is a murder. And even though it's a very strange murder, it's, you know, we we can speculate as to reasons why. This is, to me, is very weird. Why they bought the house and then did nothing with it. Yeah, it's that. It's the buying of the house to use it as a storage unit. Yeah, it basically just sat there. It started to decay. The couple, you know, they seemed like a nice, normal couple. You know, I read in a couple sources that they were essentially like polite with the neighbors, but aloof. They didn't go out of their way to make friends or anything. The only time anyone saw them is they would show up to bring new stuff into the house and then they would leave. And this went on for 34 years, 1960 to 1994. Now, this is the other part of where the story is strange. So no one really knows for sure, but the lore around the house is that the Enriquez family, they never even bothered to move the Pearlson family stuff out of the house. What? It was all still just sitting there. And I've read, th- and like, this is the type of stuff where I'm like, who knows? Like, who knows if this is like internet web sleuthing or if this is like something real. But mm-hmm. like, you know, they never even bothered to clean the bedroom. They never, you know, if you go into that upstairs bedroom, it's still got blood all over the walls, et cetera. No, et cetera, et cetera. really? You think? I don't know. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> I actually imagine they probably, you know, for as little as they seem to care about the house, that's ac- that's actually probably true. But that's fucking macabre. It's macabre. Yeah. I mean, like buying a house in Los Feliz, buying a mansion in Los Feliz to use it as a storage unit is weird. 
not cleaning up the blood and gore of a murder is mm-hmm. something else. There, yeah, that's it's macabre. It feels macabre. Yeah. Now, from what I've read, and again, I'm not sure how true this is, that they really only used the, the downstairs portion of the house. So it's maybe they just never even bothered to go upstairs. Yeah, maybe they were just like, fuck it, who cares? Yeah. But if you remember at the beginning of the story, when Harold came home that night, his wife was sitting in the living room wrapping Christmas presents mm-hmm. next to the Christmas tree. This Now, I've never been able to find a picture to confirm this, but you read stories of people who would go up to the house, like you had said, and look through the windows, and they would say, the presents are still there, the Christmas tree is still there, and people would take pictures through the windows. Mm-hmm. Well, in all the pictures I've ever seen, I've never seen a damn Christmas tree. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that it's true or not but there's all this old furniture old appliances just sitting there like 50s era stuff oh, weird. now it could have been the enriquez's stuff you know they could have been moving in all their old shit so no one really knows what was the pearlson's and what was the enriquez's stuff mm. but for many years it was all still in the house kind of mixed together so over time the mansion just fell more and more into decrepitude you know the legend of the mansion really kind of took off in like the late 80s into the 90s i think it was probably the rise of the internet had a lot to do with it but it was known people did know about it weirdos like me and you (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure knew about it over time it just became more and more of a nuisance for the neighborhood because there's all these looky-loos going up to look in the windows yeah traipsing all over the property and then it got even worse because as people knew that it was this abandoned property, a lot of squatters started breaking in. Oh, yeah. The neighbors complained. Julian and Emily did nothing about it. Eventually, Julian and Emily died in 1994. So they bought the house in 1960. They died in 1994. And mm-hmm. the ownership of the house went to their son, Rudy, who was a music store manager. And he lived over in Mount Washington, which is, it's like an area of East LA. It's like out kind of by Pasadena Eagle Rock area. Okay. They were relieved. They were like, okay, finally Julian and Emily are gone. Maybe Rudy will do something with it. Rudy didn't do anything with it. He continued to use it as a storage shed as his parents did. You know, they thought he'd renovate it. He'd sell it. He'd rent it out, something. No. Whereas Julian and Emily would stop by sometimes, drop some stuff off and leave. Now it was Rudy coming, dropping stuff off and leaving. Well, at this point, it's in the 90s. The story of these murders and this abandoned house where you can supposedly see the wrapped Christmas presents from the night of the murder mm-hmm. is just exploding all over the internet. Like it just became this parade of people <sighs> going yeah. up to the house. Now the neighbors sort of tried to take care of the house themselves. You know, they'd gone to the city and complained. The city wasn't really able to do much. They basically said you have to install a, an alarm system and some security cameras, and you have to like clean up the front of the house. That's what the city made Rudy do. Mm. But the backyard remained like an encampment for homeless people. Mm. There are also people breaking in. Now I'm going to quote this. is from a neighbor. It uses a term I don't like, but I'm going to read the quote. It's okay. a term for sex worker. This is from a woman named Jude Margulis. It's from the LA Times articles from 2009. Where she said hookers were coming in. Everybody was bringing guests up there. One night I was sitting outside and I noticed the people were over there having a picnic in the backyard. Which sounds very like, oh, they're having a picnic. But I don't, I mean, I think it wasn't that. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. So they continued to complain to the city. People approached Rudy over. And at this point, the house is worth, you know, north of $2 million. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask, like, 
I mean, it's got to be worth a nice chunk of change. I would think it would be worth even more than that just because of the land. But maybe it's like it actually the value of the house has just had gone down because to even use the land, you got to put money into like tearing. At this yeah, point, and honestly, is- $2 million in Los in Los Feliz is not not a high amount. I think that's like a condo in Los Feliz. But I don't know. <laughs> or at least this part of Los Feliz. This is up right. in the hills. But apparently the house was valued at more than $2 million. People kept going to Rudy saying, we'll buy it. We'll buy this house. We want the lot. I think neighbors had tried to like band together to offer him as much money as they could because they just wanted this blight out of the yeah. neighborhood. Because at this house, at this point, the house is basically a teardown. It's yeah. like, there's not much you can do with it at this point. He just refused. He would not sell it. And when people would ask why, he'd just say, no, I haven't decided what I want to do with it for more than 20 years. So, but the neighbors sort of tried to take care of the house themselves. You know, Mm -hmm. they would clean up the yard. They ended up all painting the garage because I think the paint was all coming off of the garage. Oh, God. Um, The city did make, like I said, it made him put up, sounds like very basic rudimentary security system. Mm -hmm. Almost like not worth that much. Right. I don't think he gave a shit. So like, was he checking the security footage to see like- Yeah, he's like, like, I don't care. (laughs) I obviously do not care, guys. Give a shit. So (laughs) so the neighbors were just like, whenever they saw someone traipsing up there, they would call the police. Oh, wow. uh, cuz they're just trying to you know this is their neighborhood and like you saw the neighborhood i mean it is this mm-hmm. tight cuz i've driven by the house a few times when you turn in there like it's a pain in the ass to turn around and get out like yeah. you have to kind of do like a key yeah, turn yeah, to yeah. get out yeah i remember that you know it's like we were talking about last week you know there's just no city planning in la so it's just all yeah. these houses just like jammed under this narrow like goat trail basically mm-hmm. No, this is a problem for these neighbors. So they're, they're really trying to, you know, they're calling the police to you know, run people out of there. They're trying to make the house at least look sort of presentable. I mean, it, right. I mean, when you saw it, it was kind of right after it sold, which, which I'll talk about in a second. So I think they cleaned it up a little bit. The first time I saw it, I mean, it, it's like almost the cliche haunted house. Mm. Like if anyone's read Stephen King reference here, if anyone's read Salem's Lot, and knows mm-hmm. the Marston house in Salem's Lot. That's basically what this house was. Just this big looming mansion right by the road that's just like, I mean, the windows are boarded up, yeah. weeds all over. I mean, it, it like was like out of a movie or something. They also put a chain across the driveway to try and discourage people. Not much worked, it sounds like. So this is from the LA Times article. It says, the estate's terraced grounds are pockmarked by gopher holes and overgrown with grass that sprouted after recent rains. Growth that neighbors know will turn brown when summer returns. Mm. A pond is partly filled with rainwater. Weeds poke through cracks in the curving asphalt driveway. And like that driveway, if you remember, it's just cracked and like weeds coming out of it. You know, he did repaint the house because the city made him. He did restucco it. But that's it. That's all he did. Do you know did, how much a restucco costs? Yeah. Sell the house. Yeah. And that's that's why like this, this is so puzzling. It's so strange to me. Like what this family's attachment was to this house that they did not give a shit about. And clearly didn't give a shit about the neighbors. Like just. Yeah. So that was the house for a very long time. So let's talk okay. about the haunting stories. Okay. And like I said, there's actually not like a lot to this. Like I was hoping there'd be more to the ghostiness of this. Mm -hmm. It all kind of goes back to that 2009 LA Times article where the reporters sort of hint at, like nod at, like maybe it's haunted. And Rudy Enriquez, who they interviewed for this article, he said, no, 
it's not haunted. He basically says, this is his quote from that article. He says, I've never looked at it as being haunted, he said. For a time, I had two cats inside there, and I had to go often to feed them. I still go there often. I was there last night, in fact. I know now I'll be going more often. The only spooky thing there is me. Tell people to say their prayers every morning and evening, and they'll be okay. So that's Rudy. <laughs> it's like this <laughs> house is I'm like... I'm just sitting here agape at this yeah. whole thing. Well, I just, I just love that it's like, you know, this house is filled with ghosts and criminals. Can you do something about it? And he's like, just say your prayers. Well, fine. and I, I also like that he's like, I've never looked at it as haunted. Rudy, you, I never looked at the damn thing. Yeah. Like, <laughs> exactly. like, how would you know in between dropping off like boxes of old TV guides and shit? And feeding some weird feral cats that you've gotten. <laughs> I don't know why I'm so mad about this. <laughs> it's it's kind of infuriating. But um, I am. I'm like really mad about this. So there are stories about the house being cursed. Okay. You know, there, there's definitely stories about, again, you get into like the, the Reddit world on this stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like the house was possessed. There's something evil in the house. It's what made Harold do what he did. Mm. Um, and there's all this evidence of the house being cursed since then. The biggest evidence I saw of this, okay. um, and I'll, I'll leave it to you guys to make up your mind. So at one point, a friend of one of the neighbors, like the neighbor was bitching about the house and her friend was there. And she's like, I'm going to go over there and check this house out. And what the neighbor described, she was like, this was her Nancy Drew moment. So she goes over there, <laughs> opens the back door <laughs> uh-huh. and like an alarm goes off. And so she, I think she went in for like a couple seconds. The alarm goes off and she leaves. She goes back she's, and she starts joking. She's like, oh, I guess that's the ghost. That's the ghost. Well, but then she's like, ah, oh, my hand hurts. And then her hand started swelling up. And then like red veins started going up her arms. Okay. Apparently in the 20 seconds she was in the house, she got bit by a black widow. And she had to go to the hospital. It was probably on the doorknob. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> come on. My house here in Albuquerque gets infested with black widows every summer. Like mm-hmm. my backyard. Like <laughs> I think I've told you this. Have I told you my running naked through my backyard story before? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Little sidebar. When I was, uh, this was like 15 years ago. It was probably before I went to grad school. I was clearing vines off of like the window looking out in my backyard. And for whatever reason, I wasn't wearing gloves uh-huh. and pulling vines. And I feel something kind of go like off the top of my hand. I was like, what's that? And I looked down and there's a black widow sitting on my hand. And I, I'm not as bad as I used to be, but I'm pretty extremely arachnophobic. Mm. So this, so basically cut to like five seconds later, me running in circles through my backyard, ripping off all of my clothes and screaming. Yep. yep. I, found, I think I got down to my boxers and stopped. And I look at my neighbors, like looking over the wall at me, just like, are you all Get right? Get out of here, pervert. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I was like. And a man not problem? run through his backyard on natural as god intended <laughs> yeah <laughs> screaming at the top like and i'm just imagining like he's looking over the wall at me like the six foot four bearded dude just like screaming like a child <laughs> but you know like this is the funny thing about this right is that you know that you weren't like ah! you know that you were like ah, ah, nah, <laughs> it's probably no, that ah, like yeah <laughs> doing all this it's stuff probably more which like, makes it even weirder that he was like what's happening over there yeah i feel like in my mind i was screaming like a child but i was uh-huh. probably more like grunting like a boar like his probably <laughs> and yeah and then he's like oh i better check this out yeah this is what this if, does yeah what if you were right. back there with you know a lady friend 
enjoying at <laughs> two in the afternoon on like a Tuesday. Or something. Yeah. Having an afternoon delight with a lady friend. <laughs> and- <laughs> well, this very same neighbor who's still there and I'm friendly with him. Also her like one night, I think I was like, this might've been when we were doing dead Billy and I was trying to print out like call sheets for the next day. And my printer fucked up at like two in the morning. And I was just stressed because I'm in the middle of this movie. And I just started screaming at my printer, just motherfucker, like two in the morning. And like in a fit of rage, literally threw my printer into the backyard. And then I look over and my neighbor and is again. standing at two in the morning, probably because he heard me screaming again in what my if house. He's just always there. What yeah. if- <laughs> he, just, he just lives there. He's just, he's like a tree stump. Just, he's just yeah. there. But anyway, <laughs> so I'm with you. I think getting bit by a black widow that was probably on the damn doorknob is not a sign of a curse. Yeah. Um, but this, of course, is part of the evidence that the house is cursed. It's trying okay. to keep people right, out. Right, right, right. Blah, right, blah, right, blah, right. blah, blah. Now, other evidence of hauntings. So people have gone to take pictures a bunch through these windows mm-hmm. over the years. The pictures come back and will show people will see glowing orbs in the house. And if anyone knows anything about hauntings, like orbs are one mm-hmm. of the like telltale signs of a haunted house. Mm-hmm. In my watching of Ghost Adventures this last week... Mm-hmm. glowing orbs are big. are big big paranormal giveaway yeah and now i've seen some of the pictures of these orbs to me it looks like dust in the lens or something yeah but here's a quote this is from la weekly where they say what makes this a bit more compelling for us non-orb believers mm-hmm. is wondering what has stirred up the dust that is usually the cause of most orb activity in an empty house, one, I might add, that has been empty of all human traffic for years. It is true that wind may be getting into the house through leaky windows, but there does seem to be an overabundance of this within the home's walls. Mm. And I will say, I've seen a lot of these pictures, and like they don't necessarily look paranormal, but it's like you'll see these almost looks like sparkling lights mm-hmm. throughout the house. There have been a bunch of ghost hunters who have like gone up there and traipsed around. Mm-hmm. I th- I don't think necessarily sanctioned by anybody. <laughs> right, right. They have claimed that when you go there, you can hear, this is again, quote from the LA Weekly. It says, the hunters have reported hearing the sound of a woman calling out no in a terrified voice, oh. followed by her frantic screaming and then silence. The silence is then shortly followed by the low moan of a male who sounds as if he is in distress. This moaning goes on for a short while until all is again silent. Could mm. this be the sound of Harold killing his wife and then his sorrowful moans once he has realized what he has done? Now, what's weird about this is that according to these stories, it's always around four or five in the morning. And there's a couple of things significant about that. One is that he killed his wife at about five in the morning. Mm-hmm. But if you know anything, again, about paranormal lore, you know, everyone thinks midnight is the witching hour. Mm-hmm. Like if you talk to a paranormal investigator, they're going to tell you it's actually usually more like three or four in the morning. Mm. is when most like activity happens right so you know the timing lines up (sighs) that's awful okay and then the last thing is that uh also from the la weekly it's quote it says the hunters also tell of seeing the face of a woman staring at them through one of the upstairs windows no thank you she will gaze at them for a few minutes and then simply vanish from sight yeah (laughs) oh it gets even It gets even worse. It says, I, okay, hold on, hold on. <laughs> you had to turn your light on. It was starting to get dark in my house and I didn't want to be alone with the ghosties. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It says, uh, still in this quote, it says, many have photographed this apparition, but when they got home and downloaded the photos onto their computers or got their film developed, she was not in any of the frames. Mm-mm. 
No, no, thank you. So this all boils down to how much you believe these ghost hunters. Mm-hmm. Now I'm. Let's go to my weirdest thing believability scale. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. When it comes to whether this house is haunted, I'm going to say it's a three or a four. Okay. I'm not sure how much I believe these specific stories. Like this is all over the internet. There's nothing saying one person couldn't go there and be like, I saw some orbs. And then now everyone sees orbs. Everyone claims to see orbs. Everyone claims to hear the screams or moans. Okay. Et cetera. Everyone claims to see the face and it's very convenient that you never get a picture of her. Right. So I don't ascribe it much to these stories. Okay. But as someone who does believe in ghosts, Mm-hmm. has had my own ghost experiences it's almost hard for me to believe that the house is not haunted right after what's happened i think also neighbors have like the neighbors to me are more credible than mm-hmm. these ghost hunters yeah and i have re- I, I couldn't find any direct quotes but i think neighbors have also claimed that they've seen or heard things there <sighs> that kind of bumps it up a little bit to me as mm-hmm. well so i would say take what these ghost hunters say with a grain of salt but i still think also like and I don't know if this is just because I know the history of the house and it's creepy how it's over the street, mm-hmm. but it's like the moment you turn on to Glendower Place, there's mm-hmm. just a feeling that kind of bleh, seeps in. It's just like a dark feeling there. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the house now. It's still okay. there, still okay. standing. You can, again, I'm not recommending you do this, but you can go see it. <laughs> we do not look. Official line of the Weirdest Thing podcast is that we do not advocate going by any property that we talk about ever in any uh, any private property. We'll say yeah. that. Let's say private property. Here's what I will say. Mm-hmm. If you are going to go, just drive by it. Just yeah, do, just do a drive by. It. Don't get out of the car. Don't go traipsing around. Just do a drive by. Be like, there it is. Don't stop and take a picture. I've been by it like a bunch of times because I'm fascinated by it. Never stopped and taken a picture of it. Never taken a picture of myself. It's, Mm-mm. but it's there. It's still standing there. Now, Rudy Enriquez, he died in 2015. I think he was 77 years old at that point. Uh, okay. And what's interesting is, is like, we're sitting here and it's like, he seems like this super weird dude and like the family was super weird. Mm-hmm. You know? But everyone who knew him, like outside of this context, is like, Rudy was a great guy. Like, he was just this very kind, like dapper gentleman, always like well dressed, like mm-hmm. you know, he ran a music store. So again, I don't get it. The Enrique's family, they're not like your classic crank, like eccentrics. They sound like yeah. other than this, they're a pretty normal family. Yeah. So who knows? Who uh, but knows? he passed away in 2015 and the house finally sold. Uh, the following year. And interestingly, who bought the house? I didn't know this until doing the reading today. Mm-hmm. Do you know who uh, Lisa Bloom is? Not off the top of my head. She's an attorney. She and her husband bought the house for $2.289 million and began to renovate it. Now, Lisa Bloom is Gloria Allred's daughter. So Gloria Allred is the famous like feminist civil rights yeah. activist attorney. Yeah, Lisa Bloom works with her mother a lot. So she's this like famous feminist advocate attorney. Uh huh. Then her reputation took a big kick in the ass when it turned out she was advising Harvey Weinstein because she had a she had like a movie deal with Harvey Weinstein. So yeah. she was like talking to Weinstein about like allegedly, allegedly. I'm not running Pharaoh. Don't come after me. Okay. Um, <laughs> but essentially trying to discredit all the Weinstein accusers. So her her bona fides is a feminist advocate or solidly called into question yikes well they they bought the house they started to renovate it they've never finished the renovations 
and within a couple of years, put it back up for sale for $3.5 million. I would love to ask her, why didn't you finish these renovations? Because I don't believe she's ever talked about it. Because I don't, like, this isn't, like, part of the public story of her. It's just, like, if you look into the house, she was the owner for Yeah. But that's also strange to me. So I, so here's where I go back to my believability scale. Do these people go into the house, something happens, and they're like, nope, and they fuck off from the house because they're just, Mm -hmm. like, can't deal with what's in there. Mm-hmm. And like, let's not talk about it because it's our reputation, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Who knows? From what I can tell, because this was from the 2019 article that it was saying it's it's again up for sale for 3.5 million. I could not find anything saying whether it has or has not sold at this point. Here's a quote from the real estate listing on the house. It says, this very special opportunity awaits the right buyer with a vision for real value by doing a remodel or ground up development. Property will not qualify for financing. So you got to buy, you got to pay cash. You can't do a mortgage on this house. Property interior has been taken down to the studs. So another reason not to go tripsing around this property, people, I'm yeah. like getting all mad like you guys are going to do I, Yeah, nobody's done anything yet. <laughs> no, I'm tired. I'm grumpy. Um, no, but another reason not to go tripsing around the property is like, if you go look through the windows, you're not going to see the Christmas tree or- anything. Yeah, it's all gone because now. It's you're going to see a bunch it's, of sheetrock. Yeah, exactly. It's just been stripped out. The house itself is still standing and it looks about like a dead because I took you by there and that was 2019. Six mm-hmm. months ago in 2019. Six mo- either six months or eight years ago. <laughs> exactly. Depending on how your your COVID time warp uh, right. <laughs> scale has gone. Yeah. And it still looks creepy. I will say when we went by it, it looked like it had been cleaned up somewhat. From Mm -hmm. the last I had seen it, which would have been 2014, 2015 when I lived Mm -hmm. out there. Between Rudy's death and the Bloom purchase, someone, it must have been the Enrica's family, probably the extended family at this point, who probably Mm -hmm. had control of the house. But I think they were like, just take it. And that's why it went into this probate sale. Mm -hmm. Um, They actually led a photographer this woman, Alexis Vaughn. So if you remember the blog I mentioned at the beginning. Right, 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 right. They let her go in and take a bunch of pictures. And uh, we'll post some of these on social in? media. She went in? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and, and I'll, I'll post a link to her blog where there's a bunch of There's some creepy ass pictures of like fucked up dolls and stuff sitting around. <gasps> there's a lot okay. of stuff that also does look very much like 1950s, like mm-hmm. of the era of the Pearlsons. Like there's mm-hmm. a scale sitting on the ground in one of the pictures, like a, like a bathroom scale, like a bathroom scale. And it okay. looks very, it almost looks like exactly like a scale my grandparents had in their house that probably was from like the fifties or sixties. So again, mm-hmm. it could have been belonged to the Enriquez uh, family, but it was sitting as if it was like in the bathroom, like someone was using it. So I'm guessing it was from the Pearlsons. <sighs> now, Alexa says she did not see any sign of the Christmas tree or of the Christmas presents. Okay. So that means either that that was bullshit or maybe someone like walked off with them at some point. Some mm-hmm. of the looky loos and squatters maybe took them. Why, why, why would you want that shit in your house? Like if you're, if you're a squatter, if you're somebody who like is experiencing homelessness or, or whatever, and you're like, Hey, a Christmas tree that I understand, but why would you want some cursed ass Christmas tree in your home? I mean, weird. That's weird. Why would you want a painting from John Wayne Gacy? You know, see, this is. Okay, I'm not going to get into it. I mean, <laughs> go for it if you want to. I think I'm right there with you. <laughs> well, it's possible It's possible they were never there or, you know, the Enriquez's could have taken them out at some point. But it's like, why would they take that out unless they were cursed? 
you know yeah. the only sign that there might have been truth to that or that the christmas tree presents were there at some point is that there's like the lid to a gift box sitting on the floor mm-hmm. um, so we'll post that in social media as well um, mm-hmm. but i'll post the link to her blog it, it is interesting if you're into like urban exploration or like creepy old buildings mm-hmm. her photo because she's also like a really good photographer so they're just like hauntingly beautiful photos nice so that is the story of the los Feliz murder mansion very creepy yeah very very creepy and i am i'm glad that we went by it it's creepy but it's like a lot of when we get into these stories like mm-hmm. i feel like the only one of these stories for myself i haven't debunked for myself yeah is mothman <laughs> yeah yeah but, like when you really get into it it's like you know and this gets to the um hotel cecil mm-hmm. is you get into the like the web sleuths and stuff and and i do like i'll put a little i'm gonna put a little uh spoiler alert here because i want to okay. talk about that shit that netflix show for a second okay so i'll drop in like a little time code thing okay Okay, guys, it's Scotty breaking in here. Just want to let you know if you want to skip our discussion of the documentary of the Hotel Cecil on Netflix, go to about one hour, six minutes, and eight seconds. Thanks. What those assholes did to that black metal musician. Right? It's rough. It's infuriating. It's really, really rough. It's, 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 really, it's really disturbing. Yeah, because they basically were like, Here's a picture of a creepy looking dude who, you know, wears face paint and does metal who posted one YouTube video where he stayed at the Cecil Hotel a year before she was there. Yeah. And they're like, well, he's clearly a murderer. It was him. And literally like harassing him. We're going to kill you. We're coming after you. He tried to kill himself. You know, they interviewed him. Um, yeah it just it, 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 it i don't know if it ruined forever but it it had a massive impact on his career and his livelihood mm-hmm. like and i and i i just want to say because i do feel like you know i did do the black metal story mm-hmm. on here like you know he's a black metal musician black metal does have this really ugly history mm-hmm. you know with the the anti-semitism the neo-nazism what does but like what doesn't though you know what i'm yeah. saying i mean again I mean, it's all levels of like like you can't i mean you can't look at rock and roll and say that rock and roll doesn't have right. a terrible history right it's just that it doesn't it's not as quote-unquote scary yeah like i mean the I aesthetic guess isn't as scary it, it's Black metal has a very specifically ugly history, particularly around yeah. the, the Nazism. Right, you know? right, right. Yes. But that was a few bands in the 90s and a few yeah. like bands who are not accepted by the black metal community today who are still out there doing stuff. You know, it's like a whole sub branch of black metal, the, the National Socialist Black Metal. Right. 90 plus percent of anyone who's a fan of black metal, a fan, a, music, a black metal musician, whether they're like this guy Morbid, who I don't think was a particularly like well-known musician. I think he was like an up-and-coming trying to get his career going. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, some of the big bands out there. You know, 90 plus percent of these, these are just dudes who like metal. You yeah. know, it's like, and I think I've been thinking about this in relation to the Marilyn Manson stuff that's coming out. Because mm. one thing that's driving me nuts is all the people on social media being like, how could they not have seen it? I mean, have you looked at that guy? Like, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, okay, let's talk for a second here about Harold Perlson and what he mm-hmm. did to his family. Respected cardiothoracic surgeon, who I'm sure just was like, looked like the nicest guy in the world. Mm-hmm. And versus like all of my, like, I've never been goth, but I'm sort of like, I don't know, goth adjacent, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, I have a lot of, 
friends who are into metal, who are into goth, who dress a certain mm-hmm. way. A lot of them are parents, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, some of them are teachers. I mean, they're good people, you know. Mm-hmm. So Marilyn Manson's a piece of shit because Marilyn Manson's a piece of shit, not because yeah. like, oh my god, look at him, look how scary he is. And I feel like that's exactly what these assholes did to this guy, this uh, right. Pablo Vergara. Is his yeah, name. just is inferior. Anyway, the, that I was just seething. That's probably why I couldn't sleep last night. I was just seething while I watched that. Oh God. Okay. <laughs> Just well, as as someone who has like also been accused of being a weirdo because I'm into horror and metal and stuff, right? And I wear t-shirts that people don't like. Sometimes. Yeah, but again, this is what I'm talking about in terms of like if that was true, if you could base someone's proclivity to violence and abuse based on the way that they look, then you wouldn't have Army Hammer. I mean, yeah. Army Hammer like is. Like you wouldn't have anybody. Harvey Weinstein looks like a fucking little old man. And he was a raging pervert abuser. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, Yeah. you know, Bill Cosby. Like there are tons of people, you guys, you cannot, you cannot, there is not a type for this kind of thing. And there's not, it's not your aesthetic. It's not your gender. It's not your socioeconomic level. It's not your education level. It's Everybody there, like there is from every classification that you can make, there will be a predator of some sort in that tier. Right. And like, I think there's a subtext to, you know, the Marilyn Manson stuff when they're like, well, you know, I mean, it was so obvious. Just look at him, listen to his music, et cetera. That's very victim blamey because it's like, how did they not see it kind of thing? Yeah. And like. I don't know. I just, I think it's real gross. And I think it's real gross what these quote web sleuths. I did appreciate on the show, the the two guys who were like, mm. I, I wish they had given him Pablo Vergara specifically an apology. Mm-hmm. You know, he even said at the end, he was like, you know, it never stopped. Even though they pretty much determined what happened. No one's ever apologized to me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a real like, and I mean, that's, you know, that's exactly how we get stuff like QAnon. I listened to a whole podcast this weekend about, uh, I'm sorry, it wasn't a whole podcast. It was an episode um, yeah. <laughs> about 9-11 conspiracies. Yeah. All the truth or stuff. Right? Mm-hmm. And how that basically kind of got started with this kid. And he was a kid. He was 21 years old when he made the documentary Loose Change. Right. I don't want to say we we wouldn't have QAnon without Loose Change. I mean, you can draw some pretty clear lines to it. And right. that's not that's not me being like, so go after the guy who directed Loose Change. Yeah. But it's just like people no, are but very- it's a, it's a way of thinking. You know, when you talk about like the murder mansion, you see it happening here too. You know, no mm-hmm. one's really gotten hurt over this but you know you see, when you get on these message boards it's just the refusal to look at evidence like creating a narrative and then you cherry pick the parts of it that fit your narrative and ignore everything else right so it's like well the house is obviously cursed because you got bit by a spider right How about it's a decrepit old house that's filled with spiders right well like, i think the thing to remember in this is and you know there are like there there is a whole there is a community of web sleuths you know that are working with things like the murder squad podcast to like really like yeah. 
disseminate information. But the thing is, is like, you have to be very responsible with this type of stuff. And the, the point is to, like I said, to spread information, to spread awareness so that just in case somebody who hasn't caught this story on Dateline or whatever the hell can be like, Oh, I do know that guy. I have seen that person. It is not for you to play detective. And just start embellishing, you know, like the, the one thing I appreciate about the murder squad is that they are always very clear. Like, if you know anything, like contact us, contact the product. They like, have a don't. very clear set of rules that it's like yeah. no doxing, no personal exactly. information. Do not contact anybody. Right. Like I mean, send that information to us so that we, the professionals, can they know through I, it. You know, the way I interpreted it is I think they know what they're doing by working with web sleuths is risky. So they're doing everything they can to mitigate the risk. And like, if you're going to do that, because like you said, good can come out of it. But I think back on the the Boston Marathon bombing, you know, all the web sleuths who identified some poor college student, I think at Rhode Island School of Design or something. Yep. Because he was wearing a similar baseball cap and had a backpack or something. Yeah. Like, and it I, was him and they doxed him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, it just like all... <laughs> I know that the allure of being the person to solve a case is very intoxicating, but I think that's like, you know, and again, I have an interest in true crime. I do. I have like, I have a very morbid (laughs) (laughs) side of myself that, you know, is interested in reading about this stuff and in learning about this stuff. I also understand that I am utterly unskilled to do anything about this. Right. And, and that I can take an interest in it from afar without having to participate in it. And I think I just wish people, more people did that. Well, because I think part of the problem is like people almost treat it like it's like a role-playing game and they're forgetting. Yeah, it's not so, guys. It's fucking people's lives. Like, well, like on. I'm thinking even of this story, you know, I, I, I'm reporting on the, uh, conspiracy theories. I don't know if you call it a conspiracy theory, but the idea mm-hmm. that the house was possessed and that Harold Pearlson was possessed by the devil. And that's why he did this. Like his kids very likely are still alive. I mean, they'd be older people now, but like, I, you know, I don't think Judy, Joseph, or Debbie Pearlson is going to be listening to my podcast, but I don't want them to listen to my podcast and hear me say that I think their father was possessed by the devil. Right. There's a certain amount of speculation that you have to, like, if you're going to tell these kind of stories, like, it's just part of it. You know, like, we're speculating, maybe there's mental health issues, but I think you always have to couch it in that, but we don't know. Right. Just don't know. Like maybe it was this or maybe it was that. Right. I keep debunking these stories for myself, but you know, I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, and I am being who I am. I both, I have the morbid true crime thing that you do. I also have like, I, whenever I hear a ghost story, I want to believe it. Whenever I hear about a cryptid, I like my instinct is like, I want to believe it. Right. I also don't want to be an idiot about it <laughs> except for when it comes to the Loch Ness Monster because the Loch Ness Monster as we know you you will not live refuse. in a world <laughs> I will not live in a world without a Loch Ness Monster <laughs> yeah it, I think I think you know this is also too a little bit of like guys uh, how to say this it's fine to have an interest in this stuff and you know to <laughs> listen to podcasts and and, right. <laughs> and all that stuff about it. But you know like don't let your don't let your like mirror neurons and your right. empathy like wither because you're spending too much time in front of a screen. Right. Like there are real people at the other end of these stories. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. 
Okay. Okay. Now, after I just got done with that big old diatribe about respecting people's stuff, uh, I'm going to talk about <laughs> I'm going to talk about some of this same shit too. Uh, so I'm excited because I, I had no idea what you're talking about. So. Yeah, I'm going to tell you some weird tales from the Knickerbocker Hotel. Oh, cool. Yeah, I I looked into that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm excited. Okay. Cool. So uh, I'll also say I'll start with a trigger warning, a content warning, I guess. My story does touch on suicide mm-hmm. and some like mental health things. So again, if this is an episode that you need to skip, like cool, cool, cool. We'll see you next week. Yeah. And if not, let's dig into it. So my sources for this are Wikipedia. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I did use Wikipedia. I'm glad one one of us did this week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're, I'm like, we're keeping the lights on there. We don't pay them any money. Like I do like my (laughs) couple of bucks donations here and there, but uh, went back to curbed Los Angeles, which is still, I'm just in love with this blog. Mm -hmm. There's a bunch of just quick sidebar. I didn't use there's a bunch of stuff on the murder house on curbed too mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. kcet.org totally la.com from beneath the hollywood sign.com those last two i believe are blogs cool. and and the la times okay so the knickerbocker hotel it is a hotel that sits at i will give this because it's a public building so yeah. <laughs> And it turns um, out it's like right by where I used to live. But anyway. Oh, interesting. The Knickerbocker Hotel sits at 714 Ivar. Is that how you say that? Yeah. I think Ivar is how I usually hear it, but. Okay. Ivar Avenue in Los Angeles. It was originally designed in 1923 to be the security apartments, but that idea fell through for some reason. Mm. There's not a ton that's known about the the quote unquote security apartments. Yeah. The hotel opened in 1929 and it was a towering example of Spanish colonial revival style, ready to cater to the blossoming Hollywood industry. Mm. Way before the hotel existed, Hollywood Boulevard was this sleepy little street in 1905, the first mayor of Hollywood actually signed an ordinance that prohibited driving flocks of more than 800 <laughs> sheep down the dusty lane. So like, that's what we're talking about. What year was that? Um, that so this is, this just said before. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the very brief little history. Also guys, we promise we won't just be doing LA. This isn't an LA podcast uh, yeah. from here on out. It's just, there's been a couple of things that have crossed our, our desks that we've found very interesting about. LA recently. So Hollywood was this, like it was sort of created with the idea. I think I talked about the did I talk about this? I don't remember. But it was, it was supposed to be this sort of like temperate, like no alcohol, you know. Oh, interesting. Yeah, like this little enclave, right? And that whole area, like there's there's a bunch of history about that whole area, including that like, even though this isn't on it, it's close to it, that like the part of Sunset Boulevard that became the Sunset Strip was mm-hmm. in a chunk of the area that was it was an unincorporated part of Los Angeles County, which meant like gambling and casinos could yeah. happen there. Like the whole, like, you're not kidding. People threw up this town mm. and then we're like, Look. yeah, like, I mean, it is we'll amazing. we'll figure that out later. Like we talked about last week, it is amazing when you really think about how just LA exploded. Oh my God. Just exploding. You know, don't drive your sheep down Hollywood Boulevard. Right, right. You can't (laughs) drive. You have to, it has to be less than 800 sheep that you can drive down, (laughs) you know, down this little, this little dusty road. But that's where we're at. So by the late 1920s, the street was becoming this like bustling epicenter of the movie industry. Yeah. It had several skyscrapers of an astounding 11 floors, which was, it it boasted like, you know, we have several height limit buildings. And for, at that time it was 11 floors and, you know, it, it 
became crowded with nightclubs and luxury apartment buildings, glamorous movie theaters. So the Hotel Knickerbocker or the Knickerbocker Hotel fits like right into all of that. Yeah. Here's a little quote from the LA Times. This is in their July 14th, 1929. Quote, two days of festivities will mark the opening of the Hollywood Knickerbocker Apartments, the film capital's largest apartment hotel, rising 11 stories on Ivor Avenue near Hollywood Boulevard. Notables of filmdom, the stage and society have been invited to assemble Wednesday for an informal preview. Heralding the event will be an electrical display, which... What the fuck is an electrical display? Um, I mean, this is back when they were like, look, it's <laughs> electricity light, and there's no fire. It's magic. This is like 1929. I know. <laughs> <laughs> to me, pretty much oh everything before 1960 is the dark ages. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, Okay. So an electrical display, a buffet supper will be served and a deluxe program rendered by a symphony orchestra and troubadours playing in the foyers, promenades, loungers, and the Lido, the Venetian open air patio. For the benefit of the public on Thursday, the official opening will be staged. The entire structure from the basement garage to the elaborate suites on the 11th floor will be opened for inspection with members of the staff of 100 employees of the Knickerbocker to conduct the visitors through the hostelry. And again, that's the Los Angeles Times, July 14th, 1929. So the hotel has about like 10 years of your like run-of-the-mill Hollywood elite action. Celebrities like Maureen O'Sullivan lived in the long-term apartments. Interviews are being given, you know, in any of the luxury rooms. Louis B. Mayer and Howard Hughes are like toasting in the banquet rooms. The Lido room, uh, which is again, the like hotel bar, sees everything from crooners to Russian dancers. Betty Grable throws a party for child star Jackie Coogan for his 21st birthday. Mm. And screenwriter Al Martin even threw a gala birthday party for his dog and invited people like Joan Crawford to chaperone like her dog to the event. Wow. I mean, that's yeah. just the most Hollywood It is thing the I've ever heard. most, yeah, Hollywood excess type yeah. of stuff that I've ever heard. BT dubs, I probably should have said this before. There is some like ghosty stuff, but it's also just this the story is really just going to be about like the weird ass history mm-hmm. of this hotel that sort of includes everything. So again, it's basically your run of the mill playground for a group of people who suddenly have a lot of money and a lot of fame to do whatever the hell they want. Like this dog's birthday party, the sort of bigger and <laughs> the better. In the mid-1930s, the strange comes to stay at the Knickerbocker and (laughs) like never quite leaves. Just just takes up residence. Yeah. So in 1935, the Pacific Coast Association of Magicians, amazing, (laughs) holds their third annual conference at the hotel. Harry Houdini's wife, Bess, who is also a magician, is in attendance. Mm-hmm. The conference included a magician attempting to escape from a straitjacket while upside down and a blindfolded automobile race down Hollywood Boulevard. I mean, don't hit those the sheep guys. <laughs> the sheep are long gone by this <laughs> point. But can you imagine? Like yeah. that is so, when you think of like Hollywood excess, that to me is like the pinnacle That's- of that. That they're like, a bunch of magicians are in town, blindfold them, slap them in the car, and it'll be a hoot. It'll be a gas to like watch them drive down Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? What if they crashed into somebody? What if they crashed into a building? My God. But it was, you know, magic. Magic. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So 10 years before, just about 10 years before, in 1926, Harry Houdini died from peritonitis and a ruptured appendix, which he allegedly got when he was punched in the 
torso area by a guy who was like, Hey, I heard you can take a punch. Right. Um, that's super. Don't, don't quote me on that. That's real. I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> this I mean, is not a Harry Houdini story. I've not done the research for that. That's, that's always basically the story I've heard too. So right, yeah. Well, we're going to go with it. You know? Yeah. And I mean, it like said it in the thing. I'm just giving a very, like, very, very, very right. Cliff's Notes version of that whole story. So Harry Houdini dies and he apparently allegedly told his wife, I have no idea if this was like right before he died or just at some point in his life. He mm-hmm. had told his wife that if there was an afterlife, he would come back to her to prove it. So after he died in, in 1926, Bess would hold a seance for him every year Oh, to try to like come in contact with him. So on October 31st, 1936, Bess holds the final seance on the roof of the Knickerbocker. Mm. And it was this like big, big affair there, you know, in, and it, it like, it's all perfectly like set of like, it's a cold and drizzly night. Yeah. They've got a fucking like red carpet out there. Attendees included superior judge, Charles Frick. Like this was not, so yeah, this is like a big deal. Yeah. It's uh, like not some fringy, just a bunch of magicians. doing. Yeah. Or yeah. yeah. So a friend of best who's like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do the seance sets up the whole spiel or the whole, mm-hmm. the whole deal. And I mean, they've got like a spirit trumpet, which is, I get, I read it. It's, it's like a megaphone for ghosties. Like they can yeah, I've communicate heard through it, a bell, writing utensils, everything to like communicate with the spirit realm. Mm-hmm. The man leading the seance, a man named Edward Saint begged Houdini to let them know that he was there to mm-hmm. no avail. So uh, he, did, young, he, did, he didn't come through. Young LA Times reporter Gene Sherman wrote of the event, quote, Mrs. Houdini said, quote, please, Harry, I've been waiting so long. Nothing happened other than an air of eerie tenseness. The meeting broke up and I made my way back to the office where I guiltily admitted I had failed to get the interview. Under the circumstances, I wasn't too much to blame. Yeah. So one, that's real sad. Yeah, it's like the quote from her breaks my heart. But also, I like that this Gene Sherman character is like, "This is not my fault. I went. <laughs> Ghosties didn't show up. I did what I had to do." Yeah. <laughs> Something about the Houdini seance like shifted the hotel. Like I said, up until this time, like it was your it was your normal Hollywood hotel, like mm-hmm. whatever. After the seance, stuff does start to get weird and like decidedly darker so maybe harry didn't come through but something else did. maybe something else did maybe they opened yeah. the spirit realm and something else came through so there's an actor by the name of francis farmer and uh, she comes to hollywood from seattle washington she signed with paramount pictures on her 22nd birthday but quickly became like she just got really like ugh, with the like the work that she was getting yeah. and all this stuff so she ends up actually heading back to 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 stock theater and ends up doing a couple of plays on broadway before she left she was a painfully shy person and so she couldn't ever like really make you know the connection with the press and all this stuff and blah 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 so the studio in an effort to like use this to their advantage they marketed her as the star who would not go to Hollywood Hmm. from 1937 to 1939 she makes her way back like I said back to Broadway she does about three productions and she was set to star in an Ernest Hemingway adaptation but by this point depression and an alcohol dependency were starting to take hold of her. Oh. She starts binge drinking to deal with the depression, which yeah. is just so sad. Like, yeah. it's also I, not 
the thing to do. That's what I mean. Like, yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't think any, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a doctor, but I don't right. think any kind of substances are, are really great for dealing with depression because so many of them are depressants. Mm-hmm. And even if you're talking about uppers, it makes the d- come down even harder. And, and so, yeah. so she, you know, sort of mistakenly starts binge drinking to deal with this depression and she ends up pulling out of the Hemingway adaptation. And when she does that, she gets fined $1,500 for doing Ooh, so for like backing out of, yeah, exactly. Lot. So she makes her way back to Hollywood, but things, it doesn't go well there. She's trying to use her work as like a, a way to alleviate her personal problems. Like I think she feels like if she throws herself into her work, the stuff will get better, but of course it it doesn't. Yeah. She's fighting with the studios. She gets married. She gets this, she has this messy, nasty divorce wherein her ex-husband literally, literally married his mistress the day that his divorce with Farmer was uh. finalized. Yeah. Just like salt in the wound. I know. Just like you couldn't have waited. You were already effing her. Like you couldn't have waited. Yeah. Just God. So that's the kind of stuff that's going on. In 1942, Farmer gets arrested for driving with her headlights on during a wartime blackout zone. So that's, you know, mm. we're in the middle of World War II. It's like, don't go anywhere, turn all the lights off. And she's out there with her fucking high beams on. Yeah. So she's arrested and jailed. And from here on out at this point, like it's it's just one mess after another. She gets charged with drunken and disorderly conduct in Mexico when she was there filming a movie. She comes back to LA to find that she'd essentially been kicked out of her home by her mother and sister-in-law. I think that they were trying to help her and just went about it in the worst possible way. Like supposed to be like a tough love thing or something. I think they were like hoping like, Hey, we're going to get you out of this place. Like come back home Uh, and all this stuff. And just like, didn't tell her. And so she came back and she was like, where's my stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Her mother gets her a room at the Knickerbocker and the next few weeks is again, it's just a stream of trouble. She didn't pay her bail from, I think the driving with her lights on situation. So she now has a warrant for her arrest. She assaults a hairdresser and that gets added to the list. Mm. She's seen running down Sunset Boulevard topless after a bar fight. Like it's just not going well. She's spiraling. She's spiraling. On January 14th, 1943, the police arrive to the Knickerbocker to take Francis in. They actually have to break into her. They don't like, they don't like bust the door down, but they're knocking and she's not answering. And so they have to use the pass key to like Mm -hmm. get into the room. When they find her in there, she is naked, drunk, and manic. Mm. And like, so the, like the officers are like, okay, okay, all right, we're done. (laughs) Like, yeah. She assaults them. They try to get her out of there. She like does not go quietly. Like I said, she assaults the police officers. She tries to run away. The police had to actually like wrap her in a shower curtain because she was nude. Yeah. And they literally carry her out. At her hearing the next morning, it's kind of more of the same. She throws an inkwell at the judge. She ends up getting restrained by the bailiffs. Yeah. The judge asks her about her drinking and she responds, quote, I drank all the liquor I could get my hands on, including Benzedrine. What do you expect me to do? I get liquor in my milk, in my orange juice, in my coffee. Must I starve to death to obey your laws? So she gets sentenced to 180 days in jail. And on her way out, she assaults two more policemen and a matron, and she tries to run away again. There are pictures of her while this is happening, and it's just like you, she just. 
she's not well. She's just yeah. not well. As she's being carried from the courtroom, she's, she is said to have shouted, quote, have you never had a broken heart? Francis yeah. is committed and eventually diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Um, I was going to say, like, there's a point at which it stops sounding like depression. Like there's yeah. more going on there. Yeah. She basically spends the next couple of decades in and out of institutions. Mm. She makes a brief comeback like in the late sixties, I think before dying of esophageal cancer in 1970, I believe mm. she's not said to haunt the hotel, but she certainly might be one of the most tragic stories to come out yeah, of there. That's pretty, that's yeah. Pretty it's just, whoa, I mean, I'd, I mean, I'd heard of her obviously, and I'd heard like very broad strokes of some of the the kind of infamy around her. Yeah. Yeah. Details. I think here's the thing, because it's so easy to look at, you know, to like look at the Knickerbocker Hotel, to look at the Cecil, to look at, right. you know, the fact that a woman, you know, ended her life by jumping off of the Hollywood sign. And, and I think it's really easy to sit there and say, oh, these like, oh, how strange they're all like are, and are these places cursed? And I think what we actually need to be looking at is the monster machine of yeah. LA yeah. and how it chews people up. It spits people out. And I get it. Like, I get that it is this like sparkly, seductive, alluring thing that you're like, oh my God, I want to go there. And my life is going to be completely different. And then, and then it's, it, I mean, it's, it's fucking hunger games yeah it's like it's a monster machine but also on some level it's like it's like some mutated toadstool or something that's just sprouting off and you know it's just mm -hmm. this out of control and and i'm saying this as someone who as we talked about last week i have a lot of love for la yeah but there's something Same. about it that is just it's just this churning kind of almost animal like, it's a meat grind. I mean, it really is. It's yeah. a, it's like a it's a living, breathing meat grinder. And, and the I thing is, think is that it was I even more so back then. Probably. Yeah. And the thing is, is that I don't think that again, I don't think that it's LA. I think it's the movie industry. And I say yeah. this as somebody who is an actor and who's somebody who loves movies, but like y'all, there's a lot of toxicity going on there. I mean, there's there's a reason why I kind of pulled out of it. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, and I didn't even experience that much of it, but you, I you can just kind of see it. And there's a point at which where I was like, how much do I want this to be my life? Right. You know? yeah. yeah. Which again is why, you know, even last week I was like, let me amend my statement and say full paid trip to LA. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Living in LA. I, I'll take my sleepy little high desert town. Right. Well, and we should, as we're saying this about it being a meat grinder, like we both know various people who live out there who are doing really well, who are like making it work for them. But doing the damn thing. Doing the damn thing. But it's it's not automatic. No. And and if you are someone like a Francis Farmer, I always think of LA as like it's gonna be one of those places that really reveals who you are, like at your yeah. core. It's gonna make you like, you know, a sort of exponential version of yourself and yeah. either in a good way or a destructive way yeah and, yeah uh, just got to be aware of that that's the situation out there yeah so if you're considering a move out to la <laughs> this isn't a this isn't a, a an anti-la episode just you know take care of yourself make it make sure you have a good support network um exactly. okay moving on d w griffith yes and i do know this part of the story but yeah ahead. considered the most important director of his generation he fucked up his karma by directing the racist ass kkk propaganda film birth of a nation yeah apparently the last year of his life griffith was like pretty much largely forgotten you know what i mean like and, and this is not like super late it's just a few decades after all of this stuff happens but, you know, maybe, 
maybe Hollywood got it right. And they were like, oh, this guy's kind of a fucking racist. (laughs) So the last year of his life, Griffith is is largely kind of living in, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? When you're not famous. (laughs) Yeah. Ignominy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, maybe. And that happened Um, to, by the way, that happened to a lot of the people out of the silent film area. Like they oh just yeah, of course it did. We're not, you know, actors, filmmakers, etc. Just were not able to make the adjustment. Yeah, to the talkies. yeah. And that's um, if you've never seen it, one of the best movies of all time, Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard. It's kind of the best portrayal of that that I can think of. Anyway, oh, nice. Yeah. So he's out of work and he's living at the Knickerbocker. He spent his days quietly and would often be seen weaving in and out of the bars on Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah. On the morning of July 23rd, 1948, he was discovered unconscious in the lobby of the Knickerbocker. He died of a cerebral hemorrhage on his way to the hospital. Mm. Story has it that he can still sometimes be seen wandering through the lobby, an elegantly dressed older man twirling his signature cane. Mm. The Knickerbocker holds on to its glamorous image through the 1950s, even as like the Hollywood area becomes a little less trendy and celebrities start moving towards West LA. Yeah. So in fact, the Knickerbocker became a hideout spot for those who wanted some privacy. Marilyn Monroe could frequently be seen sneaking in through the kitchen door to meet Joe DiMaggio in the hotel bar, the Lido, uh, for incognito dates. And the two, again, all of this is like conflicting information all over the internet but there are sources that say they might have even done a quick little private honeymoon at the hotel in 1954 before they left to korea maybe she was doing her uso show i don't remember it was somewhere it was somewhere in east asia yeah i love the idea of them bringing her in through the kitchen yeah many say that monroe so liked the knickerbocker that her ghost can frequently be seen in the women's restroom staring at herself in the mirror reapplying lipstick and fixing (laughs) her hair nice which makes sense. Heard that apparently Marilyn Monroe is like the most like she just kind of haunts all of LA because I think there's like five or six places where you can supposedly see her. That's funny because I'm gonna get to another story later on about somebody else who does the exact same thing. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so by the 1960s, folks were still hiding out at the Knickerbocker, but in a decidedly less sexy way. Mm-hmm. Um, Irene Maud Lentz, more commonly known as Irene Gibbons or just Irene. She was a fashion and costume designer. She had this incredible, like she started out as a seamstress dressmaker in this like little tiny shop. She had like taught herself how to sew when she was a kid and, and she moved to Hollywood and she's, you know, got a little dress shop for herself. And then eventually Bullock's Wilshire luxury department store, like snatched her up and was like, can we want you to come and like do, you know, mm-hmm. I was going to say haberdashery, but is that right? Is haberdashery hats? That's hats. So they want her to come and make like, you know, custom women's wear at the department store. Mm-hmm. And it's there that she starts meeting famous clientele. So this leads to her getting like independent contractor jobs at the studios to do design work. And in the late 1930s, she actually gets hired to make Ginger Rogers gowns for Shall We Dance? Oh, yeah, that's a pretty mm-hmm. big deal. Yeah, that's a pretty big deal. So her career takes off after this, and she even meets her husband, Elliot Gibbons, brother of Cedric Gibbons, who happens to be the head of art direction at MD. At MGM, Jesus, <laughs> head of art direction at MGM. Around this time, Irene tells her close friend Doris Day that her marriage to Elliot is an unhappy one mm. and that working under his brother isn't making things better because. Mm. 
you know, Elliot's brother, Cedric is, is the head of art direction. She has to yeah. work under him and it's just, it's not making for like a great marriage or work environment. Irene finally decides to leave the movie industry in 1915 to open her own design house, but she gets lured back about 10 years later by Doris Day to design costumes for Day's upcoming movies. In 1961, her husband, Elliot, suffers a stroke and the resulting illness just drains their finances. Mm. In 1961, also, like same year Elliot has his stroke, Gary Cooper dies. That's important because I'm going to come back to that. So in 1962, Doris Day is hanging out with Irene and notices that like, you know, Irene seems upset, that she seems nervous. And Doris is like, what's going on? You know, are you worried about your husband? And are you worried about, you know, like what's happening with you? And it is then that Irene confides that she is actually distraught over the death of Gary Cooper from the year before. And that Cooper was the only man Irene ever truly loved. I only saw one source that said that that might've been because they had had an affair. Everything else made it seem like this was a pretty unrequited love. Yeah, that was going to be my first question. Yeah. On November 15th, 1962, three weeks before her 61st birthday, Irene checks into the Knickerbocker under a fake room. In room, I'm sorry, under a fake name. In room 1129, she begins to drink heavily and Mm. she writes notes to her family, her husband, her friends, and the hotel staff and guests. One of these notes to like the people in the hotel said, sorry, I had to drink so much to get the courage to do this. She slits her wrists, but when that doesn't do the trick, she jumps to her death from the bathroom window. Mm. And her this body, is on what, the 11th floor? Yeah. Her body landed on the roof of the hotel lobby. Ooh. One note that she left behind read, quote, I'm sorry to do this in this manner. Please see that Elliot is taken care of. Alden, take over the business. Get someone very good to design and be happy. I love you all, Irene. Her ghost, she apparently does haunt the hotel her ghost has reportedly been seen by many like wandering through the hotel and its basement people who work in the hotel well in the building are like i'll be down in the basement and shadows will pass behind me and it's sort of like generally known to be irene yeah william frawley known as playing lucy and desi's neighbor and landlord fred mertz on i love lucy oh yeah yeah okay couple of stories here all basically end in the same way but (laughs) first one says that in 1966 while walking after seeing a movie frawley suffered a heart attack and collapsed on the sidewalk of hollywood boulevard his nurse dragged him into the lobby of the knickerbocker an ambulance was called but frawley ended up dying at the hospital it's not clear if frawley was a resident of the Knickerbocker or if that just happened to be like the closest place to get him help. Yeah. It's it's unclear. An but alternative- he ended up in the lobby. But he ended up in the lobby yeah. and uh, yeah. An alternative story says that Frawley walked out of the Knickerbocker's bar where, just a weird bit of trivia, where he always ordered a walnut with his drink. Hmm. <laughs> I cannot make so, sense of that yeah. for the life of me. I'm and I'm like, like, was it, <laughs> I'm like, was, was it a walnut with every round or was he like, bring me one walnut? I don't this know. Is, this is going to be that thing I'm going to wake up at three in the morning and be like, what I'm the sorry. Fuck? I'll put the walnut. Yeah. 
A walnut. So he walked out of the Knickerbockers bar and dropped dead on the sidewalk. It's unclear whether Frawley stuck around in the hotel, stuck around the hotel in the afterlife. Yeah. Again, different different sources. This is just an interesting factoid. In 1968, and I think by this time, like the hotel is really starting to go downhill. Yeah. Um, uh, that, 19- that time, Hollywood would have been yeah. pretty rough. Yeah. Because that's kind yeah. of East Hollywood. Yeah. So in 1968, Graham Nash is staying at the Knickerbocker the day that Mama Cass Elliot picked him up and took him to go meet Stephen Stills and David Crosby. Oh. I think for the first time. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so like history I said, was made. And history was made. So like I said, by the end of the 1960s, the once very illustrious hotel had fallen into decay. It's no longer the playground for Hollywood's brightest stars, but it had turned into like so many hotels. I don't know if it's so many hotels in the area or so mm-hmm. many hotels in LA or what, but it turned into a place for gangs, sex workers, and drugs. Mm-hmm. So sort of like the season. Yeah. yeah. In 1970, a project went underway to convert the hotel to housing for senior citizens. I saw like senior citizens. I also saw low income senior citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not just the movie stars and celebrities who continue to haunt the hotel. There are like other random guests who stuck around. I'm sure they were not the only, like, I'm sure the people I've mentioned are not the only people who died there. Yeah. And apparently even a ghostly bellboy named Roger hmm. is is hanging around. Just to talk a little bit more about like the the decline of it. The nameplates that once boasted about which famous celebrity had stayed in which suite were removed. The elevators still hold remnants of the adorned wood carvings and the chandelier Griffith collapsed under still hangs in the lobby, Mm. but little else is there to remind folks of the elegant history of the Knickerbocker Hotel. So that we don't end on sad notes. Here's some other fun facts about the Knickerbocker Hotel. And this comes back to what you were saying about Marilyn Monroe. One of the hotel's most famous ghosts is a major mystery. It is said like everything that I saw was like Rudolph Valentino. Valentino haunts the Knickerbocker Hotel. He loved to be there. He would, I saw fucking things about like how he would like ride his horse down from the Ivor Hills and like tie it to a post and go dance the tango and drink and (laughs) all of this stuff. Here's the thing. Valentino died in 1926 at age 31, some three to four years before the hotel even opened. Hmm. But he's there. I mean, yeah, you got to wonder what was there before the Knickerbocker. Yeah. Like I said, he's a popular ghost as he supposedly haunts like many, like I f- many, I f- many Hollywood locales. I feel like um, when I saw where people were talking about Marilyn Monroe is all over the place, they were like, not as many places as Valentino or something like. He's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. He gets around. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe he just like, you know, he died really young. He died at the age of 31. And maybe he just liked being a movie star so much that he decided to just stick around forever. Another little side note is that Valentino died in New York, not in in LA. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's interesting because Marilyn Monroe didn't die at the Knickerbocker, but she's haunting it. That's true. And I think a little bit of it is like, I saw Scotty, you know this, we've talked about it before, but when I was in DC and... And in Boston, everywhere we went was the place that JFK proposed to Jackie. Every, <laughs> yeah. it, it was like, oh, he, he proposed to her right over there, right in that bar. They were eating the black and blue burgers in this booth. And that's where he proposed to her. I mean, like the man must have proposed 50 I was gonna, times. I was going to say, it's probably her just being like, no, Jack. Like, you, you can't <laughs> keep drunk. it in your pants. <laughs> He's like, I proposed to her Come in on. the booth. And she's like, no, oh, that's Come not. On. We were just, like, we were up in the. Yeah, we were up in the Hamptons, you dum-dum. Friend of the pod, architect Paul Williams. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, from last week's episode, is said to have done one, possibly two renovations on the Knickerbocker. Oh, really? Yeah, sources, again, sources are unclear. The first redesign is listed as being completed on October 31st, 1936. If that date rings a bell, it's because that evening was the last Houdini seance. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. The second is listed as starting in June of 1925. Williams' renovation appears apparently included the addition of a sun and cabana penthouse, a rooftop swimming pool, a sun deck set in a tropical garden surrounded by guest rooms and suites. It seems like Williams also added air conditioners and TVs to every room, a new banquet area, parking garage, and gave the hotel entrance and signage a facelift. Okay. Perhaps the hotel's most charming persona was Speck. Speck <laughs> was an English setter, and he was the hotel's resident dog and companion to the Knickerbocker's manager, Jack Matthews. For years, Speck witnessed the strange and wonderful stuff happening at the Knickerbocker. He was there when Griffith collapsed in mm. the lobby. He knew how to ride the elevator and would do so very politely, always allowing guests to enter and exit first. <laughs> and then he would stand on his hind legs and he would push the buttons with his paw. That's uh, adorable. <laughs> it's adorable. <laughs> he never scratched or barked at the door to his human's third floor apartment, but instead would ring the doorbell just like he rang room service every night for his dinner. I just, I mean, I'm like looking over at my dumb dog <laughs> that can't stop whining for five seconds. <laughs> just like, why can't you be like Speck, Bowie? Come on. <laughs> well, Speck was obviously very heavily trained. Like they yeah, talked about I mean, how the reason he, why Bowie can't be like Speck is because I have I'm terrible at training dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but that is just some of the weird goings on at the Knickerbocker Hotel. It still stands. It is an apartment building for senior living. I don't think you can go into it, but it's still there. So if you need to do a drive by on one of our stories, you can absolutely do it to the Knickerbocker Hotel because it's just standing there. Yeah, because when we were planning this episode, I had a whole story that I was going to do that was a ghosty, I thought going to be a ghosty haunty story. And then mm -hmm. you were going to do another ghosty haunty story. And then we yep. both switched things up. When I started questioning my first story and I started looking into, well, what ghosty haunty things are in LA? Everything in LA is like haunted. The Nick, the Everything. Well, but the Knickerbocker comes up like one of the first things. And as I was looking at it, I was like, oh shit. Like I totally know that building. Cause yeah. it was not right by where I lived, but when I lived in Beachwood Canyon, it's really not far from there. It's kind of mm -hmm. like, I would wind down that way to get down to Hollywood Boulevard. It is, it's a cool old building. Like, yeah. like a lot of the buildings in that part of Hollywood are these like cool 1920s style. Like you said, Spanish revival. There's some art deco stuff over there. Yeah. Like, it's neat. It's yeah. got the big Knickerbocker sign on the roof. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. think that's still there. At least it was there when I lived there. Yeah. One article that I, I think it was in the LA Times article. And it was so funny because, you know, like one of the weirdest things in doing the research for this particular story is because, you know, D.W. Griffith was like that motherfucker actually died in the hotel. Right. It was so weird because I'm looking at stuff that's from like 1998, 2001 and all that kind of stuff. And with today's sensibilities, it is so weird to see how these articles are being written and they're mentioning D.W. Griffith as like, he started Hollywood. He created mm -hmm. Hollywood, you know, with the other three by starting, what was it, United Artists? Yeah, he did that with Charlie Chaplin and- Mary Pickford. Mary Pickford. 
Yeah. yeah. And you know how sad it was that he he died in relative like anonymity and and that his star had faded and there was some yeah. bullshit story about him showing up at Grauman's <laughs> and he was like watching from the back and somebody was like what's up and he was like shocked to see that they were doing the foot and handprints. Mm-hmm. And you know the the article was like, you know, so shocked that nobody had ever asked him to do that. And I'm like because he was a racist and like yeah. I'm sure that's not why that happened. But but it's so weird. (laughs) Yeah, it's so weird to read stuff. Griffith is, and I mean, we talked about this earlier on the podcast. Griffith was a very important figure in Hollywood. And I think he gets too much credit for inventing Hollywood. That's some of that like Hollywood myth making that happens. Yeah. There were a lot of filmmakers like him who are, you're really experimenting, you know, because if you look at like early kind of one reeler films, it was all you set the camera down and the action happens in front of it. They were taking it all from the stage. You know, yeah. So it's like the proscenium arch of the stage. Right. And it was filmmakers like Griffith who started being like, hey, maybe we can move this camera around. Maybe we can actually cut the film and, you know, experimenting with shot reverse shots and stuff. Like, it's all very important, you know, and Griffith was a part of that. Yeah. As I said, not the only one. We don't need to like, you know, give him too big of a blowjob. But like, yeah, you know, you can't deny his importance to Hollywood at the same time. Well, for one, his movies suck. Like, beyond Birth of a Nation being just terrible, they're pompous. Like, he he followed up Birth of a Nation with this movie, Intolerance, that's just this Uh unwatchable three-hour, like, nonsense. Like, just this pompous, arrogant asshole. I read read that- it comes through in the films. Yeah, I read that Intolerance was his response to, like, the critics. But in this way that, like, doesn't even make sense. Right, yeah. But, like, like, it's just, like, he's a complicated, figure he was important to the development of the medium but uh, just the i don't know the the myth my thing is, has grown my th- around him is ridiculous yeah but my thing is he was important to the medium at the cost of who like who was right. out there who might have been more innovative more imaginative yeah. braver more courageous somebody who is from a marginalized community who didn't get the opportunity to do any of this stuff because people like dw griffith were because they were white dudes right yeah who were well, like a allowed to go and do all this stuff and you know making a movie that was part of the inspiration to reignite the kkk if you yeah know. so that's like, why i'm like we don't know what we lost in the placing of him in the sort of right. stratosphere of hollywood's history like we have no idea who might have been able to do more because they didn't have the opportunity because people like dw griffith were getting the opportunity to do right it. well and and like i said i mean i think you know we can talk about him being important but he is like i've watched enough movies from that time period and I would be like I don't know I think Buster Keaton was a much more important mm. I mean Buster Keaton kind of you know everyone thinks of him as this comedy star but he kind of invented the modern action movie actually mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know yeah you know it's so like it was... there's, there's all these other filmmakers you know and yes they're all white men mostly of that time period but there are plenty of other filmmakers that we can celebrate who beyond not being just a dumpster fire of a person but also were frankly better filmmakers right yeah to me like let's mention him he's a footnote or he's more than a footnote but not much more as far as i'm concerned yeah but i like i mean again all of this to say it's so weird to read even i like i told scotty this offline uh after last week's episode i was reading an article on npr about paul williams and it mentions i hit this part in the article and it's like it it knocked me back a little bit because it was like 
actor and philanthropist Bill Cosby. And I was yeah. like, ew, why are like, why are you talking about Bill Cosby this way? Like, what the fuck? And I scroll up to look. And the date on the NPR, on the article from NPR is 2012. Mm-hmm. The thing that does suck about that though, and it's the same thing with this, like this 1998 thing, is that I'm like, the news about Bill Cosby had, was already starting right. to come out. Like that was already, yeah, it, it was, was already the- happening. And it was it was moving beyond the Whisper Network. Yeah. Um, and well, dang, it, and took a, it took a bit to take that guy down. It's like what we were saying about, what I was saying about Marilyn Manson earlier. Mm-hmm. Is like, you know, I think it's bullshit to be like, oh, I saw what, you know, how could you not see what was coming because look at him you know look at the image listen Mm -hmm. to the music you know that part's bullshit the part that's not bullshit is like he talked about it a bunch in interviews in his own autobiography i actually didn't know much of it because there was a point at which i stopped paying attention to marilyn manson so i just Mm -hmm. really wasn't like i wasn't aware of most of the stuff Mm -hmm. but it was all out there like for the press for the for the music press you know him talking about how he wanted to take a sledgehammer to evan rachel wood in like 2008 in an yeah. interview, you know, it's like that stuff. That's the part where it's like there was a responsibility from the media establishment or whatever mm-hmm. to be like, hey, like maybe we should. It's almost like he hid behind the shock rocker thing because mm-hmm. people were, oh, it's just Marilyn Manson being Marilyn Manson. Right. You know? I don't think they looked at it. Honestly, I don't think they looked at it a lot different from like, you know, the sort of shock stuff that somebody like Ozzy Osbourne did. Right. You know? It's like, well, Ozzy Osbourne bit a head off a bat. That's different. Yeah. So than- there we go. Yeah, but I, like just like I said, you know, again in this, in I saw in a later, whoop, in a later article something about the city of Los Angeles put a motherfucking plaque about D.W. Griffith on the Knickerbocker, mm-hmm. and this was, I mean, I think this was somewhere in the two thousands, and I'm like, we know better by now, guys. Like we, like, yeah. like, what are we doing? Yeah, I mean, it goes to the like the Confederate statues where it's like oh! you don't need to bury history, you know, obviously. No, but do we need to like have a fucking, like, do we need to now put up a plaque to this? Exactly. That's what I was going to say is it's like D.W. Griffith is part of Hollywood history. needs to be acknowledged that he's part of Hollywood history, but we don't need to celebrate him with a fucking plaque. And if you're going to put a plaque on there, like you need to be like, hey, this is where fucking racist ass. (laughs) Right. This is where dickbag D.W. Griffith fucking croaked, whatever. What would you do if you went to a city and you saw a plaque like that? I would take a picture, put it on Instagram. (laughs) Right. Here's the spot where Major D-Bag, Paul Samuels, uh, (laughs) whatever the, that, that would be an amazing performance art like stunt to pull right to go around and just like in the middle of the night change the plaques to actually be like here's like here's the true history of this a-hole confederate statues dw griffith (laughs) i feel like someone i don't remember the story but someone did something kind of like that over the summer like when all the the talk about confederate statues was going on someone put up some statue somewhere I almost mm-hmm. want to say this was in Albuquerque. Was it an Onyate thing? I'll have to look this up. I don't remember. But it was like some artist put up a statue that was like exactly what you're saying. And then was immediately taken down. <laughs> <laughs> 
by the they were like nope uh, but um, i mean like again like step to your shit they're like that's the thing right is it like we cannot move forward it's right it's a thing in aa that like it's it's the thing that they talk about with addicts like you cannot move forward into recovery until you admit that there is a problem right and i think that's a very frustrating thing about everything that we see happening socially right now is the amount of people who want to say we aren't a country that was built on on white supremacy we don't have a problem with race we don't have a problem with gender we don't have a problem with whatever the hell and we just want to keep living our lives and it's like then we're never going to get any better right and until until we can all say hey like we all to varying degrees and in very different ways but we all suffer under these schools of thought like Mm -hmm. we're never we're never gonna get any better but that's also a huge tall order because humanity it's just i feel like it's just inherent in humanity that people we're just not there has, yeah. And there, you, I think part of sadly, part of being a human is having the belief system that you are better than someone. No, I mean, as we've talked about, there's everyone is capable of being an asshole if you're part of some power structure. Yeah. Um, none of us are immune from it. Yeah. Know? And yeah. like, and you know, and it's, you know, not to kind of beat a dead horse, but it's like, you know, we've talked about this, you know, my Lovecraft thing. Mm-hmm. But you know the difference. I feel like between like if you're a Lovecraft fan, you know about the racism. Also, the racism is, as I've said, isn't all that present in the work itself, with some big glaring exceptions. Mm-hmm. But everyone, you know, like you don't read an article like any. You don't read anything about Lovecraft without it kind of being brought up. And I feel like the problem with D.W. Griffith is it's, there is this like instinct to want to pretend it didn't exist yeah. or, or just like change the subject, you know? Yeah. And it's because, you know, Lovecraft was a pulp writer who was not very popular in his time, really hasn't, didn't become popular until the 50s, 60s, 70s. Mm-hmm. You know, long after he was dead and is really still only popular with like this small subset of pop culture mm-hmm. dw griffith built hollywood or whatever yeah. you know and so it's just how who we choose to like okay we'll ignore the bullshit with this person because of whatever yeah and i feel like that's how i mean we're on a big political rant now but like this is how you end up with a donald trump because it's like people ignored all the bullshit about donald trump for fucking decades well i think and it's I like mean, well, unfortunately, he's a businessman and he was on this reality tv show so yeah i mean i think unfortunately like you know that's what i'm saying like it's just been par for the course of like yeah. excusing ignoring rationalizing doing all this stuff i mean even you know when the wine scene stuff was coming when the bill cosby stuff was coming out Mm -hmm. you know i had conversations with people that were just like if he had done this how could it have stayed Barry so long and why didn't they go to the police and why didn't they do anything and oh this is happening now when he's like in the process of getting a tv deal and blah Mm -hmm. blah and i'm like do you know how hard it is do you understand what it is to report a sexual assault especially if you're like i don't remember it Mm -hmm. all i know is that there's a couple of things that happen that really lead me to believe that this happened. You can have all the evidence in the world. You can have a tape of the goddamn thing. And people are going to be like, oh, but his life and he's ruined and he's such a bright star and blah, 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 blah. And I mean, people are still doing that. And, you know, and I'll admit, because Bill Cosby, (laughs) kind of like Marilyn Manson, is someone I just didn't pay attention to for decades. Yeah. But I'll admit, like, I think, you know, I heard, I read some gossip 
something probably on like Gawker or something that kind of alluded to the accusations about him, like, you know, probably early 2010s or something. And my instinct probably was to, like, I didn't think much about it, but my instinct probably was to be like, well, no, it's Bill Cosby. It couldn't be true, you know? And then I just moved on. And like, I feel like we all did a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And then when the truth is kind of like so overwhelming, you can't overlook it. it. It's like easy to denounce Bill Cosby now, but I, you know, I think about like why didn't I pay more attention in 2012? Yeah, when you read that or when that article was from that you read because yeah. I'd heard it. Like I didn't know anything about it. I didn't follow up on it. But I think I just made an assumption that like, well, no, he's Cliff Huxtable. You know, it's that conflating of the persona with the person that right. I'm mad at people doing with Marilyn Manson. I think I did it the other way. probably, Right. Without well, even thinking about it. Just Yeah. Right. And I mean, you know, it is a thing of like, these things need to be investigated and looked into because we don't want, you know, (laughs) this isn't something where we want web sleuths to like get a hold of this stuff. Like we want to make sure that it's already so hard to report this stuff that we, we, we don't need any like stupid shit getting in there and messing it up even more. But the evidence was so overwhelming with Bill Cosby. I mean, it was just. And for a long time, that's the thing is it's like, you know, I didn't pay any attention. But if I had done any looking into it, like mm-hmm. it was pretty clear, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, again, it's the same thing with Harvey Weinstein. It's the same thing with. Well, I will say I, with Harvey Weinstein, there was no part of me that was surprised. And it wasn't that I had specifically heard any or read any stories about the sexual abuse, but just the way he was known to be so abusive to people he worked with. You know, I was surprised by Louis C.K., And apparently that story was an open secret too that I had totally missed. Mm -hmm. The Harvey Weinstein stuff, I was like, yeah, that kind of tracks. But he was able to operate with impunity for decades. Right, right. But but again, this is like, this is what I'm getting back to is that like everybody, he was able to operate with impunity for decades because he was this, he was like a kingmaker, right? Mm -hmm. He was this mogul and nobody wanted, nobody wanted to tear the thing down because he had built the careers of so many people. But again, who out there would have been better, kinder, gentler if if they had had the opportunity to take Weinstein's place? Well, hopefully we're not there yet. And maybe we can end this on a slightly. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I've had this conversation with people, you know, my years out in L.A., Mm-hmm. And going to all these meetings, you know, like I was talking about last week, I went to meetings of Paradigm, went to meeting at mm-hmm. HBO, at, you know, pretty much all of the studios, a bunch of production companies, you know, just, you know, I've been around, I've been around out there, uh, you know, both TV, film, independent, major Hollywood. And what I will say is like, you go to these meetings and this was, this was a few years ago, so I don't even know how things are now. I would go to these meetings and a lot of times the senior executives, you know, the older executives, the the vice presidents and presidents of this and that. Mm-hmm. You know, vast majority were men, but once you got down to the junior executives, the you know even the assistants who you know if you if you're an assistant in Hollywood, it's not like being a receptionist. You're moving up that track to be a producer and executive. Mm-hmm. At least fifty fifty women, all young women, a lot of them in their mid twenties, maybe getting into their early thirties. And I'm just thinking about it. You know, that's you know probably I was noticing that when I was out there in 2009. That's more than ten years ago, and it's like. You know, so these women who are 25 years old, just starting in their careers, you know, they're now moving up to that level. 
Yeah. Where they're going to start taking over and it's going to, it's going to be much more equitable over time. And it's going to, and we're not there yet, but I have a lot of optimism that that toxicity we were talking about with LA is like the era for that may be like those days may be numbered. And I don't want to be like Pollyanna-ish about it. And like, (laughs) but like, right. I have to have hope that like, it's it's like trying to steer the Titanic away from the iceberg, you know, but you know, you're turning this massive ship, but it is turning, I think. Yeah. I hope. I hope so too. I hope so too. Yeah. All right. On that okay. note, on that, happy President's Day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, as always, thanks for listening, guys. Uh, be sure to subscribe, rate, review. Definitely, please don't be shy. Leave some reviews. We would like to hear from you guys. Yeah, um, we want to hear from you guys. And, you know, as always, stay weird, stay curious, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Friends will blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.